You only have so much time. And you have a big assignment. I want the entire world to hear the gospel in my generation. I want every person on this planet to be saved. We open God's Word today together to be subject to it, to be taught by it, to be instructed. Let's go. What you're saying right now is, how did we get here? Well, because people do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that's where it is. Yep. Being Reformed is more than just affirming the five solas. It's more than just affirming Tulip. No one is outside the reach of Christ and His blood. If we are truly Reformed, there should be a sanctification, a desire to be sanctified by Christ, by holding onto as tight as we can the one who makes us white as snow. You can no more born yourself again than you born yourself the first time. Just so that you guys don't think we're just pulling stuff out of our cans here. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Matter of Theology, the place where theology matters because everything is a matter of theology. My name is Chris. I am one of your hosts. It is a joy and a privilege uh, for you to be tuning in to this edition of MOT. Um, now, as you guys probably know, if you listened to our last episode, this year I had the opportunity to participate in the 2022 Shepherds Conference held at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Um, that following Lord's Day on March 13th, 2022, um, before the main service, I did attend one of their fellowship groups called Grace Life. Um, and Grace Life is pastored by Dr. Mike Riccardi and Phil Johnson, um, both of which you have heard uh, quoted uh, on Matter of Theology numerous times, um, especially recently. And Dr. Mike Riccardi was preaching that morning, and the title of his message is, is this, it's Same-Sex Mirage why Christians cannot affirm homosexuality. And what Dr. Riccardi did is he walked through five arguments, five of the arguments, there are more, um, that the world uses trying to affirm why homosexuality or same-sex attraction is reconcilable to true biblical orthodox Christianity. And then what Dr. Mike Riccardi did very masterfully and in love he responded and refuted to those arguments biblically um, and did an incredible job doing so. Uh, afterwards, I, I went up to Mike and, and asked him, I said, brother, would, would, you, would you mind if I took the audio uh, from this morning and if I, I, I broadcast that out on our podcast on Matter of Theology? And he said, no, please go for it. Uh, so uh, that's what today's episode will be, um, uh, a, a matter of theology broadcast. Um, so you're, you're going to want to really pay attention on this one. So grab a pen, uh, grab a notebook. Most importantly, grab your copy of God's Word and uh, be prepared to dive in as Dr. Mike Riccardi uh, unpacks same-sex mirage, why Christians cannot affirm homosexuality. A huge thank you to Dr. Mike Riccardi for, and the Grace Life Pulpit for permission to do so. Um, and um, here you go. Enjoy. Over the last two months, I have been preaching a series of sermons on the doctrine of the atonement. But also over the past two months, especially with Canada's passing the Bill C-4, which criminalizes any attempt to help someone mortify the sin of homosexual desires and behaviors, I've had an earnest desire to speak to you concerning Scripture's teaching on homosexuality, and uh, I've decided, therefore, to take a one-week break from that series on the atonement and do that this morning, uh, both both Pastor John and Pastor Phil have done an exceptional job addressing this, but I thought I would approach it from a slightly different angle. I'm, I'm fairly confident that those of you sitting here don't need to be convinced that the Bible condemns 
homosexuality is sinful. Maybe some of you do, but I also know, even from conversations with many of you over the past two months, since the passage of this bill in Canada, that this issue still hits close to home. Many of you have close friends, even family members, even children and grandchildren who are being swept away in the sea of sexual perversion that our society is drowning in. And they have objections and retorts and rebuttals to the clear condemnations of homosexuality that you read to them from the scriptures. Because the culture catechizes its disciples very effectively. And that means that you need to be equipped to respond to those arguments. Pastor John has aptly said that if our society is experiencing the judgments of Romans 1, being given over to unrestrained fornication, rampant homosexuality, and a reprobate mind that issues in the transgender craziness that we all see here uh, every day, then we must follow the prescription found in Romans 1, which is what? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We must preach the gospel of rescue from destruction through repentance from sin and faith in Christ alone. As faithful ambassadors of our King, we must not retreat from this hostile and depraved society, but march right into this hostile and depraved society and unapologetically declare that the wrath of God is kindled against His enemies who do not keep His law, and that each of us has sinned and falls short of His glorious standard of righteousness." And yet that there is mercy and forgiveness to be found through repentance and faith in the righteous, crucified, and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But when we take that gospel to our friends and to our family and to our neighbors, and when we identify sin and testify to the world that its deeds are evil, we must be prepared for the arguments that come back at us that reject that homosexuality is even a sin to be repented of. Well, sure, we need to repent of sin and trust in Christ, but this is just how God made them. It's not our business to tell people who they can love. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. We just need to love and affirm all people like he would have done. Well, we, we need to be equipped to engage unbelievers with the truth. And that means that we need to be equipped to answer the arguments of those who contend that homosexuality is not mutually exclusive with Scripture or compatible with the Christian faith. And so this morning, I want to work through five popular arguments that the world gives for why homosexuality is reconcilable with biblical Christianity. And then I want to respond to those five arguments biblically. Biblically. And my goal is that you would be equipped to have these discussions with your friends and your family, with some of you, even your children, so that you can bring the law of God and the gospel of Christ to bear on, the, on their conscience. And by God's grace, see them repent and believe in Jesus and be freed from this enslaving sin that holds them captive. And so the first argument I want to address is usually advanced in the form of a question. Why do Christians even care about what two consenting adults do in their bedroom? Why should you even care? And the quick answer to that is because the triune God is Lord of all. This is His universe. We are accountable to Him, and so His law is to be the rule of our lives. And He tells us, that the only context in which sexual intimacy is to be expressed is in the covenant of marriage. But then the objection comes back, okay, fine, plenty of homosexuals want to be married, though, and you're against that, too. So why should you care who marries whom? If two people want to make a commitment to each other for life, why shouldn't they have the right to do that? Now, there are several answers to that question. The first, of course, 
is that the Bible unambiguously declares that homosexuality is sinful. You've heard that from Phil, from John, but it bears repeating. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says that fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 1, 25 to 27 describes homosexuality as a degrading passion, unnatural and indecent. And so like all other sins, its wages is death, eternal separation from God. And since the purpose of the civil government is to, is to restrain evil and promote the well-being of society, the government should not sanction and incentivize what the Lord of the universe expressly forbids and what will lead to people's eternal punishment and destruction. Another answer for why we object to so-called homosexual marriage is that God himself is the creator of marriage. He is, according to Genesis 2.18, the one who performed the first marriage. And the designer of marriage defines it as being between only one man and one woman. And as God is the Lord of the universe, we must accept his word. Here's what he says. Genesis 2.18. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 24, so Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. When it became apparent that there was no fitting match among the creatures of the earth, God purposed to make a companion suitable, complementary to Adam. And so he put him to sleep he took one of Adam's ribs and he fashioned it into a woman. Then he presented the man with his bride. God did not make another man from Adam's rib. He made a woman. In God's mind, only a woman was a helper suitable for the man. And so in Matthew 19, when a Pharisee asks Jesus about marriage and divorce, it's not an accident that the Son of God prefaces his response by underscoring that God made humanity as male and female. God did not make us only male or only female. He intentionally designed that a man shall leave his family and be joined to his wife and that these two, this man and wife, should become one flesh. Jesus does not speak of a man leaving his parents to be joined to his husband, but to his wife. And so the very definition of marriage from the creator of marriage, and thus the sole infallible authority on marriage, is that it is between one man and one woman. But why? Why has God defined marriage as being between one man and one woman? Why is the helper suitable for Adam, a woman, and not another man? And it's the answer to that question that really gets to the heart of why we should care. Marriage is a glorious institution. But the truth is that marriage is not glorious in and of itself. God has designed marriage to be a symbol or a picture or a parable that points to something even greater than itself. And it's only so glorious because of what it points to, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage is an institution set up by God with a specific purpose, to glorify Him to display and make much of him by magnifying the relationship of covenant-keeping grace that exists between Christ and his bride, the church. The Apostle Paul teaches this in Ephesians 5. You can turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 with the most breathtaking instruction on marriage in all of Scripture. He quotes Genesis 2.24, just like Jesus did in Matthew 19, when he discoursed on marriage. And then the very next thing that Paul says, after referencing that first wedding sermon 
is this. Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That needs to sink in. Paul is speaking about marriage with reference to Christ and the church. Keep that in mind as we consider the rest of this passage. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Paul gives instruction on marriage, lays out God's master plan of loving headship on the husband's part, verses 25 to 30, and respectful submission on the wife's part, verses 22 to 24. And what is absolutely astounding is the reasons he gives for why a husband must lovingly serve his wife and why a wife must respectfully submit to her husband. In verses 22 and 23, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the basis for every one of Paul's commands concerning marriage is the work of Christ in his relationship with the church. This is because marriage is a parable of the gospel. Marriage exists to illustrate the way that Christ keeps the covenant commitment that he made to his bride. What is that commitment? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I am the good shepherd. No one can snatch the sheep out of my hand. He is bringing many sons to glory, not losing any on the way. And the good news is that Jesus has saved his people from sin and from God's wrath and from just punishment, from fruitlessness, from a wasted life. He has taken our sin out of the way so that we can enjoy fellowship with our creator and redeemer forever. And marriage is purposely designed to display the glory of that good news. But it only works insofar as the husband pictures Christ and as the wife pictures the church. This is why Bible-believing Christians are opposed to homosexual relationships, because it mars the picture of the precious gospel that marriage is designed to be. If marriage is given to us in order to point us to the truth concerning Christ's covenant-keeping grace with his people, and if the husband pictures Christ, and if the wife pictures the church, then any tampering with those participants hopelessly confuses and fatally obfuscates the gospel. Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. A marriage, quote-unquote, between two men would communicate about the gospel that Christ lovingly leads and serves and saves only himself. And yet that is not good news because in that case, the church would be left to herself to deal with her sin. And a marriage, quote-unquote, between two women would communicate about the gospel that the church should follow and respect and submit to only herself. But there's no gospel there either because that's a picture of trusting in oneself for salvation. The church submitting to no one but herself doesn't illustrate loving dependence upon a sufficient Savior. It, it illustrates self-righteousness and self-effort. 
So you see, marriage as a parable of the gospel only makes sense when the husband's servant leadership pictures Christ's loving headship over his people. And when the wife's respectful submission pictures the church's joyful submission to her Lord. Which is, by the way, also why we are complementarians. Why we insist on the Bible's teaching of distinct and complementary roles of headship and submission for men and women in marriage. And so before we get too holier than thou to condemn homosexuals for obscuring the picture of the gospel by tampering with the participants, let us look to ourselves and ask, husbands, are you loving your wife in a way that makes sense of the gospel? that pictures and puts on display Christ's loving headship and servanthood, sacrificial love of the church? Wives, are you putting on display the church's joyful and eager, respectful submission to her Lord? Are you communicating by the way that you interact with your husband that it's a delight for the church to follow Christ? If not, you are obscuring the picture of the gospel that marriage is designed to be. You're lying about the gospel by the way that you conduct yourself in marriage. It's a point of reflection for all of us, a point of self-examination and an opportunity for repentance and renewed trust and obedience in Christ. But this parable is the principal reason that Bible-believing Christians oppose homosexual marriage. Not tax breaks, not nomenclature, not social agendas merely, the gospel. And as you interact with your friends and your family and your neighbors, you need to make sure that, that they know, they leave the conversation that you're having with them knowing the difference. I just don't like progressive politics. No, that's not the point. The gospel is precious. The gospel is a treasure. And if they don't understand why the gospel is so precious to us, why it's such a treasure, why it's to be so rigorously defended and protected, even in these ways, even in ways that seem hateful to them, if they don't get that, tell them. Tell them the gospel. Make them see why it's so glorious a message that to tamper with any part of it is unacceptable. And not just unacceptable, but damaging to, to them as well because it's the only source of hope and good news. That's why we care, number one. A second argument employed by those aiming to reconcile homosexuality with Christianity is what I call the picking and choosing argument. And it basically boils down to this. You've heard it. Listen, you homophobic fundamentalist. There, there are plenty other commands in the Bible that Christians don't follow today, like the prohibition against mixing fabrics in Leviticus 19 and the prohibition against eating shellfish and pork in Leviticus 11. I had pork last night. So why are you insisting upon obedience to the prohibitions against homosexuality? You know what it is? You're fine disobeying the word of God when it's stuff you don't mind disobeying. You just don't like homosexuality, and so you're picking and choosing the commands to follow and to insist on. Now, first, I just want to observe that this kind of reasoning is patently unbiblical. The argument, this argument concedes that the Bible does indeed condemn homosexuality. They're just giving us a reason for why we should ignore more of what the Bible clearly says. They're basically saying, look, we disobey God's word all over the place. Why should this uh, command be any different? But a Christian simply does not think this way about God's word. Someone who loves God does not look for ways to legitimize their disobedience to God. The one who loves God loves his word, even when that word pierces and convicts and even condemns our behavior because that word also shuts us up to the balm of the gospel that remedies that conviction. 
The word of God is the delight of the child of God. The passage that John read for us this morning, your words were found and I ate them and they became the joy and delight of my heart. And so if God's word is something, when you hear it, you feel like you need to get around it or escape from it, it is likely that you remain an enemy to God and his word. But secondly, this objection fails to understand the purposes of the Mosaic law and how the Christian under the new covenant is to relate to the law that was given under the old covenant. For one thing, the ceremonial regulations of the Mosaic law functioned to set Israel apart from all the other nations. No other nation cared about eating animals that didn't chew cud or wearing clothes woven with two different kinds of fabrics. No other nation let a perfectly good day of work and profits slip through their fingers by resting on Saturday. In all of these restrictions of the Mosaic law, God's design was for his people to be different than the surrounding nations because he was different than the gods of the surrounding nations. But in the present age, God's people are no longer confined to a particular nation. Ephesians 2 teaches that they are no longer bound by physical, national, or even cultural boundaries. The church is not a civil government or a theocracy. The church is a spiritual building. Because of that, we're not set apart by obeying laws about fabrics and foods and lengths of beards and days of rest. We're set apart by our moral purity and our holiness of life. We are to come out from all moral impurity and be separate, 2 Corinthians 6, for the holy God of heaven dwells in us and walks among us. And so one function of the Mosaic law was to set God's people apart, to set the nation of Israel apart in tangible and physical ways in order to show God's own uniqueness. But the law was also given to Israel for another purpose. It was to illustrate God's standard of righteousness, to show how far short of that standard his people fall, and ultimately to point them to a Savior who would accomplish that righteousness on their behalf and in their place. Under the Mosaic Covenant, a right relationship with God depended on obedience to all that he had spoken. Obedience brought blessing. Disobedience brought curses. If someone broke God's law, their sin demanded a punishment. And God graciously instituted the sacrificial system where his people's sin was punished in a substitute. And the consistent, bloody exercise of animal sacrifice made it clear that God was infinitely holy and that sin was dead serious. Day after day, Year after year, all of Israel would offer sacrifices for sins. And one thing they were supposed to come away with after doing that was that they could not live the way that God required. God was holy and they were hopelessly unholy. Because of this, in Galatians 3, Paul calls the law a tutor or a schoolmaster. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith so the law was designed to teach Israel that they could never meet God's standard of holiness themselves and that they needed to look outside of themselves to him for that gracious gift of righteousness. And God provided that righteousness in the person of Christ. The law was designed to point to him. And so that's why when Jesus shows up, he can declare that all foods are clean, Mark seven nineteen. That's why he can work on the Sabbath, Luke 6, 2. It's why God's people no longer have to offer sacrifices in the temple. It's why when Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Because in Jesus, something greater than the temple is here. 
Access to God would no longer be mediated by the ceremonial regulations of the Mosaic Covenant, but by those of a new covenant, whose mediator was not a temple or a priest, but the Son of God Himself. It's also why the book of Hebrews declares that the Mosaic Covenant has been made obsolete, Hebrews 8.13, because the purpose for which that covenant was given, namely to set Israel apart and point them to their needed Savior, that purpose is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the point of the dietary laws. God's people are no longer set apart by not mixing fabrics. They're set apart by being united to Jesus by faith and following after him in holiness. And so the reason that Christians don't have pro a problem mixing fabrics or eating pork is not because we're picking and choosing which biblical commands we follow, nor is it that we should say that the Levitical commands were just cultural, and since our culture is different, then the commands can change. Homosexuality was unacceptable in their culture. It's acceptable in ours. There's been a lot of change. Therefore, it's just a cultural thing. No. Those ceremonial commands of the Mosaic Covenant have been fulfilled in the person of Christ. The issue isn't cultural. It's covenantal. Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant. That's why Paul says in that same passage in Galatians 3, therefore the laws become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And then he says, but now, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We are no longer under the tutor of the Mosaic law. So to attempt to keep the dietary laws and other aspects of ceremonial worship would be like a 40-year-old man returning to elementary school. It would be to deny that Jesus' righteous life and substitutionary death were sufficient to achieve righteousness on behalf of sinners. What does Paul say in Galatians? If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you think that circumcision and mosaic ceremonialism is the right way to uh, be related to God, you're cut off from God. You've fallen from grace. So to try to obey the ceremonial laws is to miss the point. When Christians exercise their freedom to mix fabrics or eat shellfish and pork, we're not breaking the mosaic law. We're actually living obediently in light of its fulfillment in Christ. But the commandments against homosexuality do not belong to the ceremonial or civil stipulations of an obsolete covenant from a bygone era. Yes, a prohibition of homosexuality is given in Leviticus 18 and 20, but that prohibition is repeated in the New Testament, God's revelation for those living under the New Covenant. Romans 1, 26 and 27 speaks of both male and female homosexuality as degrading passions, unnatural, indecent, and error worthy of a penalty. Paul's language, not Mike's. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says plainly that unrepentant, effeminate persons and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, along with thieves and drunkards, and so on. 1 Timothy 9 and 10 includes homosexuals among those who are lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, and contrary to sound teaching. So, while the New Testament declares the fulfillment and therefore the end of the civil and ceremonial laws of the Mosaic Covenant, these New Covenant scriptures only reaffirm the Old Testament prohibition against homosexuality, showing that it wasn't binding only upon national Israel, but also upon the New Covenant people of God, anyone who would relate rightly to God in this era. The commands against homosexuality weren't designed to teach a temporary lesson like the food laws were. No, in all ages, in all ages, homosexuality tragically distorts the picture of the gospel that marriage is designed to be. On the authority of God's own word to his people, you cannot be in a, rela a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ 
while persisting in an unrepentant homosexual lifestyle. But you certainly can be restored to a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ by repenting from the sin of homosexuality and trusting in Christ for righteousness. We've said it so many times over the last couple months, but we can't say it enough. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says that some in the Corinthian church were homosexuals. He says, such were some of you, but he goes on, you were washed. They had been cleansed. Their sins were forgiven, not by pretending it wasn't sin, but by owning it and confessing it as sin and by turning from it, by forsaking it as something that dishonors God and by trusting in Christ's righteousness alone for acceptance with God. That is what we must preach to our friends and neighbors and family members. That homosexuality is a sin, yes, but that homosexuals, along with the rest of us sinners, can be washed by the blood of the Lamb shed for the forgiveness of sins. And what a delight it is to know some of you who have been washed in that way. We can say here at Grace Church, such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. We don't serve people by defining their sin away. We serve them by identifying it clearly and calling them to the crucified Savior, the one who died and rose for sins, who died and rose for sinners, and who offers himself freely to everyone who's weary and heavy laden under that burden. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's good news. That's short-circuited if we undermine the bad news. Well, we just saw the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality clear as day from Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. But there are people who argue that those clear passages have been mistranslated. And that's the third argument that we'll address this morning. These people say that the word translated homosexuals in these New Testament texts, it's the Greek word arsenokoites, doesn't refer, they say it doesn't refer to so-called healthy, monogamous, committed same-sex relationships. It refers to abusive male-male relationships like pederasty, sexual activity between a man and a boy, or prostitution, especially cult temple prostitution, which was very common in the first century Greco-Roman world. So, they say, when the New Testament condemns arsenokoites, it's not condemning homosexuality in general as a sin, but only certain forms of homosexual behavior that are especially perverse. Now, the reality is this argument that arsenokoites is mistranslated is simply false. It's important to state that right at the outset. Looking at the word itself, arsenokoites, there's a reason I keep saying it, is a compound word formed from the term arsane, the word for male, and koite, which means bed. So koite is the noun form of the verb kemai, which means to lie with, in the sense of a sexual intimacy, like lying in a bed. And in fact, the Greek word koite is borrowed into Latin uh, to make the term coitus, which we borrow in English as a technical biological term to describe sexual intercourse. So even from the basic etymology, arsenokoites speaks of male bedding. That is, a man going to bed with a man. There's nothing in the word itself that suggests its meaning ought to be restricted to a particular kind of going to bed with a man. It just speaks of homosexual behavior in general. Now, what's interesting about this word arsenokoites is that it doesn't exist in Greek literature prior to the New Testament at all. You find it in secular Greek writing after the New Testament, but before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, it's nowhere to be found. Paul coined the term himself. So where did he come up with it? Well, the answer is he got it from his Bible, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you look at the Greek translation of Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, the two passages in the Levitical law that deal with homosexuality, you find the constituent parts of the term arsenokoites. Leviticus 18.22 says, you shall not lie with a male 
as one lies with a female, it is an abomination. I want you to hear the way that that sounds in Greek as Paul read it. And listen for the term arsenokoites. It, in Greek, it sounds like this. Kai meta arsenos, u koi koitain gunekos. I wonder if you can hear it. Arsenos, koitain. Both of them are there. Leviticus 20.13 says this, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Here that is in Greek again, the Bible that Paul would have been reading. Kai has an koimethe meta arsenos koitain gunekos. And it's really clear there. The terms appear right after one another. So when Paul coined the term arsenokoites and used it in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1, it is absolutely unmistakable that he meant to connect it both etymologically and conceptually with the Levitical prohibition of homosexuality. Whatever Moses meant when he wrote those commandments in the Torah, Paul meant in the same thing in the New Testament epistles. And there's simply no question that the Jews understood Moses' prohibition to refer to homosexuality in its totality. How do I know that? Well, for one thing, the rabbis used the original Hebrew expression found in both of those passages, mishkav zakur, lying with a male. They used that Hebrew phrase to speak of male-male intercourse in the broadest sense. So, for example, commenting on these passages, the Talmud explicitly says that the male with whom a man lays may be, quote, an adult or minor. So that rules out the notion, at least from the Jewish perspective, that Moses was referring only to pederasty. Besides that, first century Greek speakers understood the Mosaic pr uh, prohibition in the same way. For example, the historian Josephus explained to Gentiles that, quote, the law of Moses recognizes only sexual intercourse that is according to nature, that which is with a woman, but it abhors the intercourse of males with males. In general, the New Testament scholar Robert Gagnon comments there are no limitations placed on the prohibition as regards age, slave status, idolatrous context, or exchange of money. The only limitation is the sex of the participants, the gender of the participants. And we could go on. Not only is it clear that, A, Paul intended to reproduce the prohibition exactly as it was intended in the Old Testament, and, B, that the Old Testament intent was to speak of homosexuality indiscriminately, but further, if Paul wanted to communicate a more restricted kind of homosexuality, he wouldn't have had to coin a new term. If he wanted to prohibit pederasty, there were Greek words for that, like... Paiderastai. Uh, there's another one, Paidomini, or Paidophthoroi. You can hear it in there, all of those. But rather than employ those terms, he coined his own compound word from the Old Testament prohibition of homosexuality in general. And still further, the historical sources tell us that Paul's coined word caught on and the term arsenokoites and its cognates in post-New Testament writings in several selections of Eusebius, for example, are applied exclusively to male-male intercourse, not limited to pederasty or cult prostitution. And still further than that, when the New Testament was translated into Latin and Syriac and Coptic, those translators all rendered arsenokoites in ways which are unambiguously translated to men lying with men. And then besides all of that, it would be ridiculous to interpret Paul's intent in using arsenokoites without taking into account his explicit indictment of both male and female homosexual behavior in Romans 1. We've read it before, so I won't repeat it, but Paul speaks in the broadest possible terms. He doesn't limit himself in Romans 1 to non-abusive, so-called so unloving homosexual unions. He speaks of women burning in their desire for women and men committing indecent acts with men. T to think that he would condemn homosexuality in general in Romans 1 only to coin a technical term from the text of Leviticus to refer to a more specific subset of homosexual behavior in 1 Corinthians 6 violates about just about every principle of grammatical historical exegesis that there is. And it clearly reveals an agenda. 
an interpretation in search of a justification rather than an honest, unprejudiced, objective search of the author's intent. And I don't mean to suggest that you all need to become Greek scholars, but this is the level on which the battle is being waged today. If somebody says, oh, that's just mistranslated, what are you going to say? Oh, well, I guess I'm not a New Testament scholar. No, this is hard, but it's not unintelligible. You need to gird up the loins of your mind and be equipped with these things so that when that common canard is trotted out, oh, it's mistranslated, you can say, actually, no, it's not. Arsenokoites, male bedding, Mishkav Zakur, the Talmud, right? You listen to this message again. There'll be a transcript. A fourth argument goes like this. You know, Mike, you're talking an awful lot about Paul and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, talking a lot about the Old Testament, Leviticus and the Mosaic law. But I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. And Jesus, in his entire three years on earth, said absolutely nothing about homosexuality. I'm going to stick with Jesus. If it was really important to him, he'd have said something. Those who make this argument seem willing to grant that the Old Testament and even Paul in the New Testament condemned homosexuality as sinful. But the sentiment behind this objection is that the Old Testament is outdated and Paul had corrupted the way of life and the ideology that Jesus came to propagate. Jesus would have been loving and affirming of homosexuals, not bigoted and intolerant like that homophobe Paul. But is it true that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality? Well, there are at least four reasons why this argument simply doesn't hold up to scrutiny. In the first place, it's an argument from silence, which is a logical fallacy. And therefore, by definition, it rests on an unstable rational foundation. Jesus also didn't say a word about pedophilia or bestiality or rape by name. But it would be beyond absurd to seek to garner support for any of those abominable, abominable acts on the basis of such silence. The Babylon Bee, that great bastion of wisdom, and <laughs> posted an article a couple years back called Jesus Never Said Anything About Felony Home Invasion. <laughs> so it must be fine, right? Leave it alone. Focus on other things. No, Jesus' silence or his his not using the term arsenokoites is no more an endorsement of it than his silence on pedophilia, bestiality, incest, rape, child molestation, and any number of heinous sexual sins is an endorsement of them. It just doesn't follow. Secondly, a great portion of Jesus' ministry related to Israel and those familiar with the law of Moses. They were living in an age under the Mosaic Covenant, which, as we've seen, explicitly condemned homosexuality. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that the Scripture was infallible and inerrant when He said in John 10, 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. And He, thought, he taught in Matthew 5, 18, that it was so abidingly authoritative that not the smallest stroke would pass away until all was fulfilled. Unless there was some precipitating issue that would force Jesus to comment on homosexuality, the only reasonable conclusion is that His view of homosexuality was the Old Testament's view of homosexuality. And third, when Jesus did speak about marriage, he affirmed it as an institution between a male and a female. We've read it before, but we'll go back to Matthew 19, where the Pharisees ask him what he thought about divorce, hoping to trap him into disagreeing with Moses and thereby to find a reason to condemn him. And in response, Jesus says, Matthew 19, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And what's so terribly interesting about that is that if Jesus wanted to simply and efficiently answer the Pharisees' question about divorce, he could have just 
skipped immediately to verse 5 of Matthew 19. Have you not read that the two become one flesh? That's really the answer. God joins spouses together as one flesh, and man shouldn't separate what God has joined together. So why does Jesus start in verse 4 by reminding the Pharisees that God made human beings male and female? A point that seems superfluous and beside the question. The answer is he's going out of his way to make it clear that the divinely ordained institution of marriage exists only between one man and one woman. That God created man as male and female is inextricably linked to the institution of marriage. When God brought the man and the woman together to become one flesh as husband and wife. But all of those reasons are really supplementary to this final one, and it concerns the inspiration of the New Testament. And while it's true that we have no record of Jesus speaking about homosexuality in explicit terms during his earthly sojourn, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said he would send to speak his words, superintended what Paul wrote so that he wrote exactly what God desired to be written. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you see, strictly speaking, Jesus did not stop speaking when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John finished their gospel accounts. While Jesus was still on the earth, he told the disciples in John 16, 12 to 14, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But, verse 13, he promises the Spirit would come to his disciples and would guide them into all truth. That's not a promise about picking the proper tube of toothpaste in the supermarket. The Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. It's about guiding the apostles into the writing of the scripture, the recording of Jesus' words that he said the disciples couldn't bear at the moment. This is a promise from Jesus himself that the word that the Spirit would speak to the disciples would be Christ's own words. In this way, John 16, 14, the Spirit would glorify Jesus, he says, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit did just that. As the church was being built, the Spirit spoke Jesus' words to the writers of the New Testament. All Scripture, which according to 2 Peter 3.16, included Paul's writings, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the very Word of God Himself. You say, but didn't men write it? Yes, they did. But these passages teach that God, the Spirit, so superintended the minds and the wills and, uh, of the writers of Scripture that the words that they wrote under their own recognizance were precisely what God wanted to say to his people. That's what, me, what, what Peter means when he says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts all the way through to the book of Revelation are all the very words of God himself. And since God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and since Jesus himself is God the Son, all Scripture is the word of Christ. Even the words not appearing in the red type are nevertheless the Lord of the church speaking to his church by means of the Holy Spirit through the agency of human writers. So did Jesus address homosexuality? Yes, he did. He did so by sending his spirit to superintend the writing of Paul, such that Paul wrote precisely what Jesus intended, so much so that it could be said to be God-breathed. Jesus condemned homosexuality by means of Paul's condemnation of homosexuality. And that means if you deny that homosexuality is sinful, you deny Jesus' own words. You deny Jesus himself, and that's irreconcilable with true biblical Christianity. I want to address one more argument. I think it's the most widespread today, and it goes something like this. Look, Mike, in the midst of all your attention to the details of various Bible verses, you've lost the big picture. The cardinal virtue that Jesus taught his followers was love. And if you value love, what's the problem with two consenting adults making a commitment to each other out of love? Love is love 
is love. To insist that homosexuality is sinful is just not loving, and therefore it's not Christian. See how the collective reasoning of the culture aims to paint the Christian into a corner. Any response that doesn't fully affirm homosexuality, no matter what the Bible says about the matter, is hatred, pure and simple. Jesus calls us to love. You claim to follow Jesus, so you're the unchristian, bigoted hypocrite. But again, the argument just doesn't hold water. And here's the reason. The wisdom of secular society has failed to define love biblically. To our self-indulgent, narcissistic, perennially adolescent, self-willed culture, love means nothing more than the psychologist Carl Rogers' notion of unconditional positive regard. To love someone, according to our society, is to affirm every decision that they make and to applaud them and celebrate them for just being them. To being authentic, to being true to their truth. And that kind of thing feels good, doesn't it? It feels really good to be affirmed without qualification, to be told that you're amazing just the way that you are. And because of that, people have confused the idea of being affirmed and accepted and flattered and made much of with true love. Loving me means making me feel good by making much of me. And this ideology of love as unconditional acceptance is woven into the fabric of our cultural consciousness. To believe anything else is un-American today. And then... Those who have imbibed that definition of love turn to the Bible. And all of a sudden, they start reading and hearing about love. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. The greatest commandment in the law is that you love God and love others, Matthew 23, 37 to 40. Love your neighbor as yourself, Galatians 5, 14. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, John 13, 35. All of these wonderfully biblical concepts come flooding into their minds and they like it. But then something tragic happens. Rather than surrendering their own preconceptions to the authority of God's word and seeking to understand how God defines love, they use their own distorted definition of love that they've imbibed from our society and from their own heart, and they foist that definition of love onto the scriptures and onto their conception of God. So now when they hear God is love, they think, well, God doesn't demand that people change. God doesn't judge anyone. You know why people scream, only God can judge me? It's because they don't think he really will. God accepts everyone just as they are, they think. That's what love is, isn't it? And so Christians need to do the same. But that's just not true. Because this is emphatically not how God defines love. In this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of these passages and dozens more teach us that love is acting to secure someone's greatest benefit. See, these passages aren't teaching us that God just thought we were so wonderful just the way we were that he would deliver his son to death for us just to show us how much he thought of us. No, they teach that God labors at great cost to himself in order to secure the greatest benefit of his beloved. When we were dead in sin, cut off from the greatest, from, from God, caught off, or cut off from all hope in the world, what would have been our greatest benefit at that moment? Answer, a perfectly righteous, wrath-propitiating, sin-bearing substitute. And that is exactly what God gives us. God demonstrates his own love to us by benefiting us with himself in the person of his beloved son. Biblically, then, love does not mean unconditional acceptance 
unqualified affirmation or never hurting someone's feelings. Biblical love labors to secure the beloved's greatest benefit. And what's everyone's greatest benefit? It's not unconditional affirmation. Say, say, why not? That sounds pretty good. Because listen, God did not design human beings to thrive on and be satisfied by the glory of self. The vision of your own glory and self-exaltation might feel good for a little while, but it will not satisfy the longings of your soul for eternity. You just haven't been designed that way. And so the person who seeks to satisfy you by making much of you, by by holding you up to yourself as if you were an all-satisfying treasure, does not love you. They lie to you. They rob you of true joy and the true and lasting satisfaction that come only from looking away from yourself and, and away from your own glory and to the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Your creator designed your heart. He designed your soul, your affections, your will. He designed all of you so that you would be most satisfied by him, by the sight of his glory, not yours. And he defines spiritual life as the ability to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This means that love is helping someone to see and know and enjoy God in the person of his son and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what love is. That's the greatest benefit that you can accomplish for anyone. Love is not unconditional affirmation. Love is laboring and oftentimes even suffering. Friends, even being mocked, even being called hateful and bigoted, even losing your tax-exempt status, even losing your job, even straining relationships with your friends and your family so that those whom you do love might be led away from worshiping themselves to find joy in making much of Christ forever. That is where their greatest benefit is. That is where their true and lasting satisfaction will be found. And so can you see why acquiescing to the LGBTQ agenda of unconditional acceptance is the very opposite of love? Why never warning someone that fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and effeminate and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, why never doing that is actually hatred? Because it is not in the best interest of sinners for Christians to affirm a lifestyle which, if unrepented of, will end in eternal destruction. It's not hate to warn people of danger. It's hate to fail to issue those warnings. Guys speeding toward a, toward a cliff, having a grand old time in his car. It is not love to say, leave him alone. He's having a good time. Who are you to horn in on his fun? That's not love. Love is stop. The bridge is out. There's destruction coming. Turn. You will die. But you don't have to. You see, friends, we do not love like Jesus loves if we unconditionally affirm someone in a choice that robs them of true abiding satisfaction and leads them to ruin. We love like Jesus loves when we graciously and patiently proclaim a message that has the power to free people from their suicidal love affair with themselves, the power to liberate them into the freedom and the joy of making much of God. See, we love like God loves when we point people away from worshiping themselves and their own desires and when we steer them toward their greatest benefit, Christ himself. So do that. Steer people away from sin. Proclaim the standard of God's law. Answer these objections when they're raised in response to the proclamation of forgiveness in the gospel. The point of going through all this is not to demonstrate intellectual superiority. It's not to own the libs. We don't care most about winning the argument. We care about winning the person. And so you need to be equipped 
And as people aim to evade the piercing sword of the law, cutting themselves off from the healing balm of the gospel, by offering these objections, equip yourself with the word of God to lovingly, patiently, but forthrightly answering these objections as we have here. And perhaps the sound and reasoned, truthful answers to the objections brought against Christ in Scripture will will tear down a superficial barrier in someone's mind so that they hear the gospel afresh and be brought to repentance and faith and find freedom. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would equip us, that you would not cause these things to skate over our minds, but that you would equip these people to dig into the Scriptures and to write these lines of argument from the Bible on their heart so that they can love their friends and neighbors and family members well, that when one caught in the self-deception of sin brings these arguments and objections, they can be answered by someone who has loved them so much to do the work and to be bold enough to share that work with them and show that the Word of God is sufficient and does, does address these, these concerns and objections and replies. We don't, we don't ask, Lord, for merely intellectual preparation. We ask for a heart that loves our dear friends and family who are lost in, in this sin and in, in these patterns of sin. And we do so looking to our own selves, knowing that while many of us may not struggle with these particular temptations, that we have our own set of temptations that we need to mortify and research and argue against just as forcefully that we would sever our own heart's lusts from our heart, from our spirit, and follow after Christ in faithfulness. Help us not to be puffed up. Help us to be built up, to love well, to preach the law, to preach the gospel, and to see sinners saved. Would you save men and women trapped in the LGBTQ agenda, in the LGBTQ bondage, through the word of the people sitting here this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.